If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Our scripture reading this morning will be uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. If you're using the Black Pew Bible that's either in front of you or somewhere near you, uh, you'll find today's scripture reading on page uh, 1028. Once again, that's Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, we are grateful that you have gathered us together today to hear these written words proclaimed. Words penned by the Apostle John as he was carried by your Holy Spirit. And we are thankful for the truth that they speak as they remind us that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, who died and rose again that we who believe might have eternal life. Father, we now pray for Pastor Toby as he comes to deliver the message. Fill him with your spirit. Speak through him with clarity and boldness and power. We would ask you to open our hearts and our minds to receive the words he has prepared for us and to live by them. And we pray that in all this that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'll add my good morning. I do want to just pass along some information before uh, we dive into the text here. Um, the elders here, if you're a guest with us, elders just means pastors. So some of our pastors are on staff, some of them are not on staff. But our elders uh, have uh, decided to give both Chad and me um, what is called a sabbatical in the next few months. So, as you know, uh, the idea of Sabbath is kind of a weekly rhythm of work and rest, uh, and, I, and that same idea lies behind the notion of a sabbatical. So, in pastoral ministry, a sabbatical is kind of an extended time away uh, for the purposes of both physical rest and spiritual refreshment. And um, it's not an uncommon practice. In fact, we have done it just a couple of years ago. We gave Stephen, when he was on staff, uh, sabbatical. Chad, for, uh, for Chad, January marked eight years of faithful ministry on our staff. And this coming October uh, will be ten for me. And uh, in, in particular, if you, I don't like to talk about myself hardly at all. Uh, but if you're familiar with the, the chronic uh, physical issues that I've dealt with, uh, in, in part, uh, that will be helped by the rest. It will not be cured by the rest, but it will be helpful to get uh, some extra time of rest, uh, even as I seek the Lord. So, uh, so my sabbatical will be first, April 22nd to May 27, and then uh, Chad will be May 27 to June 30. Uh, and I'll send out an email tomorrow with more information, but I just wanted to communicate that to you this morning and actually take the opportunity to publicly thank our elders on behalf of both Chad and me for their care and for their kindness toward us in this. Now, to our text. We're picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago uh, in our study of these first few chapters of Revelation. We began... Uh, it begins with this glorious vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, 
And now we're working our way through seven letters uh, from the risen Christ to seven churches in Asia Minor. And what Jesus says to these historical churches needs to be heard by all churches throughout history. In fact, before the vision even happens, if you'll remember in chapter 1, John is writing to all of these seven churches in general. So all of these letters are going to make their way to all of these churches. So it's no surprise that at the end of each letter, the Lord Jesus makes sure to say, He who hasn't here, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the people in Smyrna, for example, need to hear what Jesus also says to Ephesus and what Jesus will say to Thyatira and what Jesus will say to Pergamum and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea and to whichever church I just left out, all right, which would be the seventh one. Uh, But they they all needed to hear all of these words, and so likewise, we who have come along later in history need to hear all of these words. But we come today to the letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Smyrna is about uh, 35 miles north of Ephesus. It's a proud and beautiful city. Um, It had very close ties with Rome, and so that close tie plus a large population of Jews added up to a hostile environment for the Christians who lived there. And Jesus speaks to that in this letter. He encourages them in their tribulation. But if you'll notice, as we read, He has nothing against them. He has no rebuke for them. He has no call for repentance. Only a call for perseverance, the call to stay steady. And so this letter to Smyrna teaches us that every church must resist fear and remain faithful in tribulation. Every church must resist fear and remain faithful in tribulation. So I just want us to walk right through this letter, uh, beginning with what the Lord knows what the Lord knows. This letter begins like every other letter with Jesus saying those two words, I know. It's striking this week as I thought about this that there there are times in which Jesus knowing things of us is comforting and there are things that times when Jesus knowing things about us, knowing us fully like this is actually quite convicting. So you can imagine in Ephesus there would be conviction. Jesus sees all their, all, all of the Ephesians' quest for truth, but equally He sees the absence of love and how convicting that is. And we'll find the same throughout the rest, but I wonder if you've ever thought about that, how completely the Lord knows you. I wonder if this morning sitting here with whatever's going on in your life, whatever maybe tribulation you're going through or whatever sinful pattern you're allowing to take root in your life, I wonder whether the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ of your life, that perfect knowledge that sees everything, that lays you open bare and misses nothing, I wonder if it's comforting this morning. Or if I wonder if it's more convicting this morning. It's helpful to think about these things. But here Jesus says that He knows, and there are four things that He knows about them. First, He knows their tribulation. Uh, The Greek word is thlipsis. I say it just because it's a fun word to say. Thlipsis. But often in the Bible it speaks kind of of general hard times, things that press in on us, whether they be just... Uh, circumstances that are out of our control, circumstances we've created, circumstances brought on us by others, providential circumstances of sickness, but things that press in on us and squeeze us and apply pressure to life. More specifically here to the letter in Smyrna, based on what it's connected to, the Lord isn't just speaking about general kinds of tribulation. He's speaking of the tribulation that's come on them because they're suffering for the faith. And Jesus actually says that this kind of suffering, this kind of tribulation, when it presses in on us, it will reveal the genuineness of our faith. You remember the parable of the soils? Jesus talks about four different kinds of soil. 
talks about seed being spread on the road or on the rocky ground or on thorny ground or in good soil. Well, when it comes to the rocky ground, this is what Jesus says. These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. There are those, Jesus says, who are going to hear the good news of forgiveness of sin, of eternal life, of joy, and they're going to say, yes, I want that. Until such time as they understand that 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 kind of thing actually leads to an allegiance with Jesus that comes to the opposition and what they thought was a genuine response to the faith is actually just this shallow, I just want all those benefits without everything else that comes with it. And Jesus doesn't just call us to the benefits, does He? He calls us to take up our cross and die. And so the Lord teaches His disciples, He's teaching them in Mark 4 as they go out that they should expect certain things. But it's helpful for us to know this, isn't it? That this kind of tribulation that Jesus knows about, He also knows that it's going to reveal what's in our heart. It's going to reveal what we're trusting. It's going to reveal what we love most. It's going to reveal whether we're actually in the faith. Now, that helps us, but it also helps you, say, if you're a parent, doesn't it? There's a little book. I can't remember. uh, I think it's called Your Child's Profession of Faith. It's like a small book. fit in your wallet, but... One of the things that's written in that book that I found so helpful as a parent was that while we do and should rejoice when our children verbally profess faith, they express their desire to follow Jesus, we also should know that some things are going to come along to prove either that that profession is genuine or it's not. And one of the things that comes along is opposition to them. Whether that comes while they are in our home or whether that comes when they're outside and have gone out of our home, the opposition to the faith will come. No matter what type of schooling we choose, opposition will come. No matter how long they live in your basement, opposition will come. from neighbors, from friends, from classmates, from work colleagues, sometimes from within your own family. And that opposition will reveal whether the gospel has taken root. But Jesus knows this. He knows what they're going through. He also knows their poverty. Now, that doesn't mean that they're struggling to make ends meet. He's not just saying, I know you're in the lower class. This poverty is linked to their tribulation. In fact, this poverty is part of their tribulation. In Smyrna, it is hard to make a living as a Christian. The Jews who are there, those who are loyal to Rome in Smyrna, aren't going to come to their shops. They're not going to buy the furniture they make. They're not going to hire them to do repairs in their house. Does anybody remember the blue pages? You remember the blue pages? Is this, uh, you know, the Christian subculture has everything, right? We just try to imitate everything and just put Christian before it. And so this was like the Christian yellow pages, right? As all the blue pages were Christians who were advertising the businesses they run. There, you know, the Christian doctors in there, Christian uh, mechanics in there, uh, Christian horticulturalists in there, you know, uh, Christian jelly bean salesmen. There are all kinds of Christians in the blue pages. All right, and the 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 reason for that is that. Collect The reason that book, even you remember it, is because it, it was a marketing tool to say, hey, Christians, you should be supportive of other Christians. Well, in, the, in Smyrna, there's no such thing. There were no blue pages. All the Christians were just blacklisted. You don't go and give your money to them. You don't go and support them. 
It's like what's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 10, isn't it? For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession than an abiding one. And an abiding one. The writer to the Hebrews says, you accepted that because you know that what you have here is nothing compared to what you have coming. And these people in Smyrna knew that. He says that while you are poor, he says, but really you're rich. Not financially. They are rich in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They know more than anyone else what 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Contrary to what so many teachers on television and in other places will tell you, this does not mean that Jesus died so that you would be wealthy in this life. Because what does he say that they know about Jesus? They know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what enriches life. Otherwise, the plundering of our property indicates that God is no longer uh, in love with us. That no, we're no longer in the favor of God because our, our property has been plundered. We can't possibly know the grace of Jesus now. No, 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 that is not what the Bible teaches. And if the teachers that you hear begin to say such awful things, they are not preaching this gospel that the Bible gives us. And you need to turn it off. Stop thinking you can just get a little good out of it. There is plenty of good to get. You don't need to add false teachers who might say a couple of right things in the midst of their teaching. While I am thankful for those who have bought wholeheartedly into those teachers and they will hear something true along the way, I am warning you, stay away. The true riches are in glory. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Moth and rust will destroy all of it. The real treasure is in heaven. And His name is Jesus, quite frankly. He knows their poverty. He knows that it's part of their tribulation. He also knows the slander. The Greek word for slander here is blasphemy. And it doesn't mean that everybody's talking poorly about God in society. It means that everyone is vilifying them. It's, kind of, it's, it's hate speech toward them. They are villains because they are Christians, both in private and in public and on the editorial page of the Smyrna Times. These Christians are being vilified. And this happens throughout the New Testament, doesn't it? So that in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of the living God comes upon the people of God and they are testifying to the great works of God. And what do people say? Bunch of drunks. Jesus Himself was called a drunkard. In Acts uh, 17, Christians are being accused of leading a political revolt against Caesar. In Acts 21, Paul is accused of teaching falsely to the Gentiles, that he's somehow telling them to ignore the Old Testament, to ignore what God had done all through the past. And in a place like Smyrna, Christians are going to face the same thing. Like I think I said in the first, our first study, they're called atheists because they deny all these other gods. They're called cannibals because they take the Lord's Supper and they speak of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Hate-filled labels of Christians didn't just exist in that day, did it? They exist today. We don't need to run through the whole list, but probably the most notable one is that if any of us were to speak in defense of biblical morality, 
We ought to simply expect that the label bigot will be applied to us. He knows their persecution, their tribulation. He knows their poverty. He knows the slander. And He knows their enemies. That's the fourth thing that Jesus knows. Those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, racially and culturally, these folks are Jews, but in truth, they're not. The same thing is said in Romans 2, where Paul writes, For one is, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. But it's actually worse than that. It's worse than claiming to be a Jew but not being a Jew. It's worse. These aren't just nice religious people who are against them, who have a different opinion. These people believe that they belong to the synagogue of the Lord, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself says they are the synagogue of Satan. He faced the same thing in his own life, didn't he? In John chapter 8, he says, anyone who sins is a slave of sin. And the Jews say, what are you talking about? We are children of Abraham. And later on, Jesus says, well, if you were of Abraham, you'd believe me, first of all. Secondly, you're not of Abraham. He's not your father. You know who your father is? The devil. The devil. Opposition to the purposes of God, to the people of God, to the Son of God, is not a merely human idea. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Those who oppose Christ in word and in deed, those who push back, the Bible would say, are blind. And rather than see Jesus as the glorious Savior that He is, they often see Jesus following Jesus as a foolish way, an ignorant way, a dangerous way. And so Christians, rather than being seen as God's ambassadors of love, are seen as ambassadors of hate. Not just talking in terms of, of biblical morality in our society anymore, though that is certainly true. But even apart from that, the very notion that a person who does not believe in and follow the Lord Jesus Christ will be punished forever in hell is considered hate speech. How hateful that is. So you see, friends, when you sit across from the table, across the table from a friend who, whether they are cool and calm in their rejection of Jesus or whether they are heated and yelling in their opposition of Jesus, both are equally blinded by the devil. Opposition to Jesus doesn't just mean explosive hot, physical attack kind of anger. Sometimes it is cool. It looks like apathy. It's isolation. But all of it, all of it is rooted in deception. Jesus sees the enemy behind their enemies. And He tells them so, such so that they too will see the enemy behind their enemies. Why? Because we don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle ultimately against rulers and principalities and, and spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And just as surely as Satan himself can disguise himself as an angel of light, and just as certainly as false teachers can disguise themselves as nice apostles who come to town with a nice message for you. So 
equally people who are who look like good religious folk can speak the words of the devil with the motivation of the devil to do the bidding of the devil. This is why uh, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone. You know that passage. But then he says that he's to gently correct opponents so that God may grant them repentance and they will be loosed from the snare of the devil. Coming to the knowledge of the truth in that text is the, is the freedom from the snare of the devil. The devil would gladly keep people in knots and all bound in lies about being a good person is enough, being, doing good works is enough, putting down this exclusive claim to Jesus. We need to do away with that. We need to be more inclusive. We need to just reach arm in arm, and Jesus just needs to be hand in hand with, with Buddha and with uh, Muhammad and with every other world religious leader, and, and, and we just need to get along. And Jesus calls it demonic. If Jesus calls those who are Jews but do not believe in Jesus demonic, how much more those who are even outside that strain? And what the Lord knows then is actually comforting in Smyrna, isn't it? He knows the tribulation. He knows they're at poverty, yet they are rich. He knows the slander. He takes note of every single piece of it. And as these Christians seek to obey the biblical teaching to never avenge yourselves but leave room for the wrath of God, they know that not one bit of affliction, not one bit of tribulation, not one slanderous word, not one bit of property stolen will be left unpunished because Jesus knows. Now let me ask you, when you are opposed for your Christian faith in the workplace, in your family, you may have a discussion, you may continue to speak truth, but do you seek to avenge yourself even in the conversation? Because I am going to get the last word, it is going to be the sharpest, you are going to shut your mouth. Because I'm going to prove you wrong. And I'm going to get you right here, right now in this conversation. You friend, this isn't leaving room for the wrath of God if you pour out your wrath on whoever it is you're talking to. Be gentle. Be kind. Keep speaking the truth. Be angry that the fact that this person is in the clutches of the devil himself. You see, the moment we think that we can convince people to become a Christian, the moment we think we can convince people of the truth, is the moment that we've taken some of the sovereignty that belongs to only God. He tells us, speak the truth in love. We must be faithful. When was the last time you screamed at someone opposed to the faith and they bowed and said, you know what, you're right. I need to come to faith in Jesus right now. You're so angry, it's convinced me. Look, we need to hate the things that God hates. And we need to oppose the things that God opposes. And we need to speak with passion, but we do not need to speak with fleshly anger that just wants me to triumph over you. Because Jesus knows. And whatever it is that we suffer in the way of teaching the truth, in the way of living the truth, in the way of being Christians in a distinctly unchristian world, Jesus misses nothing. That's what the Lord knows. Now, what does the Lord command? Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life.
There are two commands in this verse. The first is do not fear. And this command comes really with a few reasons. First of all, he tells them not to fear because it's not over. Okay? He says, I know your tribulation, me. I know what you've gone through. I know what you've heard. I know the property that's been taken. I know the people that have done that to you. Don't fear because that's not over. He tells them not to fear because the threats are not going to subside. Not yet. They're about to suffer, he says, more of the same. What's interesting is that as they are thrown in, in, have you ever stopped to think about this? Behold, the devil is about to throw you, some of you, into prison. Have you ever just thought about that phrase? What does that look like? What does it look like for the devil to throw anyone into prison? You ever thought about that? It's not a caricature that we see in comic books or television shows. What it looks like for the devil to throw them into prison is for people to throw them into prison. They are such the synagogue of Satan that when they act, the devil himself is acting. They are so deceived by his lies. They are so in his snare. They are so doing his bidding that when they lash out in hate and seize them and throw them into prison... It is the devil himself doing it. So that rather than, as Christians, we are to be God's ambassadors, these Jews who are not really Jews are the devil's ambassadors. He also tells them not to fear, because what they're going to face is not just an idle threat here. They are going to be thrown in prison. And in Rome, the prison itself typically wasn't the ultimate punishment. Typically, prison was a holding place for the punishment that was to come. Quite often, death. And I think we can imply that based on the next command that we'll look at. The third reason they must not fear is because the tribulation won't last forever. He says, ten days. Now some will, some go, I mean, commentators go round and round about whether this 10 days is a real 10 days, like a literal 10, 24-hour days, or whether 10 days is just a way of saying a short period of time. All I know is that, I mean, I have an opinion, but it doesn't matter. What, what matters is Jesus says this isn't going to last forever. It's going to be short. It's going to be intense. It's going to be painful. You're going to be in prison. There are going to be things after that. But it is not, this is not the end. And even when some of them die in the next 10 days, that will be the end of the tribulation forever and ever and ever. Do not fear him who can kill the body and can't touch your soul. Don't fear them. How can they do that? I mean, these are good reasons, but how do you actually do that? The only way that fear doesn't stand a chance in their heart is if God is the greatest reality in their minds, and if the glory of the risen Christ has captivated their hearts. That is the only way anyone doesn't fear man, is if, if, if I'm talking with someone and what they're saying to me in opposition, I'm just like, well, maybe I should stop. Maybe I should just back off. Maybe I should just leave them alone. I don't want them to not like me. I don't want them to, I, I want our friendship, you know, and, uh, but what they're saying is absolutely untrue and I should speak, but I'm not going to because I want to preserve the friendship. When we fear man, man is the greatest reality in the room. Parents who bend and bow and cower to the will of their children, their children are the greatest reality in that room. The only thing that helps us is if God is the greatest reality in the room. If the glory of the risen Christ is the greatest thing in this conference room, at this coffee table in my living room, then I will not fear and cower and bow to the opinion of another person.
Now, this is true for our friends, right? Our, the friends that we sent, the S family, that we sent off on mission. They are in a place in which God must be their greatest reality. I mean, in a very tangible and acute manner, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ risen and reigning and coming again must be theirs because in a recent communication, the place where they're at was described as having a kind of perpetual heaviness to it. It is dark and it is heavy, and if God is not the greatest reality, you will bow and bend and cower and not stay on mission. So when you're praying for that family, that's one of the things that you should pray for, is that God, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, that that would be the vision of their hearts, that the glory of Jesus matters more than anything else. Now, most of us will never face this kind of thing, will we? And yet many of us fail to share the gospel because we fear being rejected by others, by looking foolish, or by the fact that we don't know enough to answer every question that comes down the pipe. Let me ask you a question. If these Christians in Smyrna must not fear the impending, demonic, life-ending persecution that results in death, should we really fear being called names? Should we fear relational isolation? Should we fear being rejected? No. If death should no longer cause fear, then a sideways glance shouldn't either. It's just an argument from the greater to the lesser. You and I never face death, and so we say, oh, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm not facing martyrdom for the faith. You're not, and I'm not. We are facing things that are far less painful. And yet, we cower in the face of sharing Christ because of it. What do they think? Do not fear. Do not fear. Second command is be faithful unto death. Rather than fear, Christians must be faithful, faithful in tribulation, faithful to trust Christ, faithful to live for the glory of Christ, faithful to call on Him for help in the midst of their trials, faithful to the church which is their family because being together is going to help them, faithful to continue speaking on behalf of Christ, faithful even if that tribulation should end in death. Jesus said the very same thing to His own disciples in Matthew 24. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for My name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Be faithful unto death. You see, only a couple of decades later in Smyrna, we would have an example of this. The bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, is put to death. And he is faithful to death. He refuses to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. He continues to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And as a result, I mean, he's threatened with wild animals, and he basically says, bring it on. And then the proconsul looks at him and says, well, then we're going to burn you at the stake. And Polycarp basically says, well, that fire will only last a little while, but the fire for those who deny Jesus will last forever. So bring on the fire. He is faithful to the end, faithful unto death. And if we're to be faithful unto death, surely we ought to be faithful to excommunication from our friend group. Surely we ought to be faithful unto discrimination from teachers or professors if we're a student. Surely we ought to be faithful unto the distancing of our family members. Surely we ought to be faithful unto being overlooked for that promotion at work. We have to be faithful. We do not fear. We must be faithful. Whatever the opposition. 
But the thing is, we don't just grin and bear it because it's the right thing to do, even though it is the right thing to do. We resist fear and we remain faithful because there's blessing in it. There's reward in it. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And Jesus says the same thing here. So we saw what the Lord knows. We saw what the Lord commands. And now let's see what the Lord promises. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus promises the crown of life. Now, there are two types of crowns in the Greek language. There's a crown that the king wears, and then there's a crown that the victor wears at the games, the one who's victorious. And this crown here is not a king's crown. This crown here is the crown for one who is victorious. The Lord Jesus is telling these Christians, you're pressed down and you're suffering and you're under the thumb of your persecutors, but remain faithful and you'll be the ones who come out on top. Meaning life. The victory of life. You be faithful unto death, you'll get the crown of life. Do you want the crown of life? That's not a rhetorical question. Do you want the crown of life? Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. James 1 uses the same phrase, doesn't it? Blessed, and in the same kind of context. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. You will receive the crown of life. Victory over death wearing the crown of life. Secondly, you will be untouched by the second death. The Lord promises this. Now, the Bible speaks of the second death as eternal punishment in the lake of fire, in hell. And those who resist fear and remain faithful, Jesus promises they're not going to be touched by it. In fact, in Revelation 20, we have this kind of teased out for us, especially for those who die for the faith. So, Revelation 20, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God. And later it says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then it concludes, over such the second death has no power. Isn't that good news? No power. Now, this is quite a promise. The crown of life and being untouched by the second death. Well, how can Jesus do that? Verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This is who's talking to them. The first and the last, meaning that He is the God who grants life. He is the first and the last. But then, most especially, He died... Specifically, He died in our place as our substitute, taking the punishment for our sin, and He came to life. He was raised on the third day. And in fact, Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching, he said, God raised Him up, looking, uh, loosing, not lo looking, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Death could not hold Jesus Christ. And so because of that, 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. Jesus won the victor's crown by defeating death. And He offers to give it, to share it, so that through faith in Him, faith in His sacrifice, we are united to Him, and His victory over death is our victory over death. So that whether death is thrust upon us by persecution, whether death surprises us in tragedy, 
whether death slips up on us in sickness, whether death slowly comes as old age deteriorates our bodies, it cannot and will not win. That's good news, brothers and sisters. We sing in, uh, we were just playing in rehearsal this morning, just a bit of the resurrection hymn. See what a morning, gloriously bright. It's the dawning of hope in Jerusalem. But in the last verse it says, And we are raised with Him. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. That's what Jesus is saying. That's how Jesus can offer uh, the crown of life. That's how Jesus can offer to be untouched by the second death. Because death can't hold Him, and He won the crown of life, and He's saying, it's yours if you'll have me. Every church must resist fear and remain faithful in tribulation because, dear friends, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And the glory of His reward outshines anything that we can imagine. Now, most likely, you will not face a martyr's death. But the reality is, all of us will face death. Whether we face a martyr's death or not, we will all face death. And dear friend, if you are holding on to something that is other than trusting in, entrusting your life to, surrendering to, following Jesus Christ, if you are not trusting in His death for the forgiveness of sins, if you do not have His righteousness credited to you through faith, it's not just that you'll be touched by the second death. You'll be engulfed by it. And you will enter into eternal conscious torment. Because you believed the lies that originate with the devil in this life, you will share his end in the life to come. But that need not be the case. If you will turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will forgive you. He will give you victory over sin and over death. He will give you eternal life. And only then will you be able to obey these commands for the rest of your life. Do not fear. Be faithful unto death. Because Jesus knows you. And on that last day, He will say, I know this one. He is mine. She is mine. Does Jesus know you that way? Do you know Him? Are you known by Him in that relationship? Would you turn to Him in faith if you don't? The hymn says, He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Right now. Let's take just a few moments to meditate on this, and then I'll pray and we'll be concluded.
with your heads bowed as we, before we go to the Lord in prayer, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would urge you, confess your sin, call on the Lord to save you. And if that is you, and you have come to Jesus in the last few days, you are turning even in your heart now to the Lord. Talk to one of our members here. Come talk to me. Let's talk about what it means to know and follow Jesus Christ. Our Father, we bow before You, thankful for Your Word, thankful for these words from the risen Christ to the church at Smyrna. And we pray that we will have an ear to hear what You are saying, that we will take to heart the truth that You know us, You know our circumstances, You know the struggles of opposition that we face, whether they be cool and calm or heated. We pray that You will give us grace to heed Your commands, to, to not fear, but instead to be faithful unto death, to be faithful unto any consequence that may come to us in this world for following Jesus. And we thank You that when by Your grace we persevere, the crown of life awaits us and the second death cannot touch us. We pray, Father, this week that we will live as those who, just doesn't, who haven't just studied these matters but believe them. Believe that you know. Believe that we must obey your commands. And believe in the crown of life to come. Change the way we live based on what we have heard. By your grace. For the glory of your dear Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who did not fear. Who was faithful unto death who came to life again, and who grants the crown of life to all who believe. In His name we pray. Amen.